Hello and welcome to Queer is Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And today we're again talking about the 18th century French spy, the Chevalier d'Eon. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. The only major one is discussion of misogyny and trans misogyny throughout the episode, both at the time and in modern scholarship. And I'd like to particularly warn for discussion of the modern rhetoric of pathologization of trans identities that goes on. I'll also mention that although we've chosen to use they, them pronouns to refer to them for reasons we'll continue to explore here, uh, we are going to read out quotes that refer to Dion as he, him, and she, her. We're also going to include a brief mention of anti-Semitism. So if any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this one and listen to a different episode. This is the second of a two-part episode, if you weren't aware. Uh, So it's probably best that you listen to the first part first. I will quickly go over the first half of their life now, though, to refresh all of our memories. So Dion was born in 1728, assigned male, raised as a boy, and began a successful political career in the service of the French government under Louis XV. While they were serving as the acting ambassador in London, their relationship with the French government quite dramatically (laughs) broke down. (laughs) I really recommend you listen to the first episode. And they spent about a decade in exile because of that. During this time, rumours began to circulate that they were really a woman who had been raised as a boy. When Louis XV died and Louis XVI became king, Dion was recalled from exile and they made it a condition that they be publicly recognised as a woman. Despite this, they were extremely opposed to taking on female clothing, at least partially because they correctly viewed it as the government trying to restrict their access to sort of like the public sphere. Mm -hmm. So that's about where we're up to. So where we start the story again in this episode, it's 1777. Dion is now 49. They've recently started dressing as a woman and in this dress they're presented to court and they're received very warmly there by Louis XVI. They also banter with Marie Antoinette. The king at this time recognises Dion as chevalier in the feminine form of the word. So chevalier is a title that they already had. It's roughly equivalent to being like a knight or something like that. And they had been awarded this title when they were living as a man in the masculine form. And the title did exist before this in the feminine form, but all of the women who had held that title had received it because they were married to a chevalier in the masculine form. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the first time someone holds that title for achievements of their own. Okay. They're also allowed to keep wearing the Cross of St. Louis, which is a very prestigious military award that they've been granted. And so generally they're accepted very strongly by the king. And this acceptance signals to the upper crust of French society that Dion is to be accepted more broadly, that they're to be considered a heroine and not some kind of outcast. And so a lot of people start sending them invitations to parties. Oh, well, that's nice. This is much better than I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we really ended on a downer last episode with kind of their reaction to being forced to wear women's clothing. So yeah, I'm glad they're at least being treated pretty well right now. I'm very scared, given the content (laughs) warnings, that this is going to take like a rapid turn. Yeah, well, and I mean, also, we know what period of history we're in. That is also true. We do. What period of history are we in? (laughs) <laughs> well, I just heard the name Marie Antoinette, yeah. so... Uh, <laughs> hmm. Hearing Marie Antoinette also made me actually get like a good mental image of what 
women's clothing at the time looked like. Yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Would you also cry if forced to wear that, Alice? Probably. And I am a woman. <laughs> Another reason that they're accepted is because there's considerable precedent for the kind of woman they're trying to present themselves as. So there are a lot of examples from roughly this time period of women who disguised themselves as men, or at least that's how this broad class of people is understood by societies and many historians today. Some of them were definitely women though. Mm -hmm. And these people were often valorized for doing this provided it was for quote-unquote acceptable reasons and they resumed living a normative female life after a time. So for example uh, there was a British woman called Hannah Snell who joined the army during the war of the Austrian succession, served in the army for five years and then resumed living as a woman and sold her story to publishers. And she was celebrated generally by British society as a heroine. The feminists in particular pointed to women like Hannah Snell as examples of what women could achieve given the opportunity to serve in war or whatever. And Diana's maybe the best example that they can point to. Uh, for that sort of thing. Burke's Annual Register in 1781 described them saying, it must be acknowledged that she is the most extraordinary person of the age. We have several times seen women metamorphosed into men and doing their duty in war, but we have seen no one who has united so many military, political, and literary talents. Okay. That's a pretty glowing endorsement. Mm. Feminists would also turn to uh, figures such as the Amazons and Joan of Arc for similar reasons, and Dion themselves would compare themselves to those figures in later writings so you know like there is a variety of images that are available to them that they can kind of situate themselves amongst Mm -hmm. they are of course much discussed in the public sphere so there were prints sold of their appearance one example from the frontispiece of london magazine from september 1777 depicts them standing facing the camera (laughs) the artist (laughs) facing to the front uh, and they're sort of like cut down the middle with half of their body being dressed as a man and half of their body being dressed as a woman oh okay because I've seen that picture and I wondered when I saw it because like you still see that Billy Tipton for example and Billy Tipton's biography has that image kind of on the front yes Billy Tipton is a trans man we did an episode on you should listen to it but I was wondering how old that picture was when I saw it if it was from the time or Mm. if we just had been doing this weird thing Mm. for hundreds of years and I guess we have yeah there's it's not the only example uh, from the time either there's another not like not quite the same thing but similar sort of vibe where like two engravings were sold together and they're sort of like headshots of down sort of like both facing slightly inwards and one is of them presenting as a man and one of them presenting as a woman and that's exactly why i brought it up Mm. because i thought about like other episodes that we've done for example on fanny park and stella bolton Mm -hmm. uh, who were two people who were assigned male at birth but who often presented as women and called each other fanny and stella and so forth who were the subject of a court case and we talked in that episode about how a lot of the rhetoric around them sounded so modern in its transphobia Mm. Uh, yeah there was the example of the biggest problem some people had with them was that Fanny had used the women's bathroom at a theatre. And they were like, well, you know, if we let, you know, Fanny do it, then what's to stop men just dressing as women to get into women's bathrooms? And it's like, oh, glad we've stopped saying that one. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we absolutely still depict trans people that way. The cover to the main English language biography 
on Dayon, which is called Monsieur Dayon is a Woman uh, by okay. Gary Hayes, does the same thing where it has like a figure sort of like cut in half and one oh. is dressed as a man and one as a woman. Yeah, mm. I've seen that book. Mm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I don't know that you described it as a weird thing. I mean, I don't think it's a weird thing. I think it's a like, it's obviously it has some negative connotations and is bad in a lot of cases but i think it's you know i think it's a fairly predictable way of depicting gender non-conforming people from societies that don't understand them yeah it's a very clear visual on how society understands gender as a binary yeah 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 and also it's the fascination with someone having transitioned right mm. you know mm. it's it's the same kind of impulse that had people uh, like in trashy magazines kind of saying I want to do a story on this trans woman can we get a before picture mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah the newspapers also talked about Dion uh, the state was very rigid in its control of the press at this time and a lot of these papers were written by exiles overseas and then smuggled into France mm-hmm. so they don't necessarily have a high standard of journalism Mm-hmm. These papers uh, would interestingly sometimes mention skeptics about Dion, people who didn't think that they were actually a woman, but generally only in order to argue against them. One of the arguments being used against these skeptics was that, well, if they weren't a woman, then their appearance would obviously give them away. That's not a very sound argument, given that society believed they were a man for many, many years and their appearance did not give them away. Well, it's also interesting because there are still a lot of people at this time who are commenting on how masculine they look. Mm-hmm. They themselves mentioned that they had changed their mannerisms very little, saying, I adapted to my condition without changing my appearance or speech, as others may have wished. They continued to do things like pour coffee for women, which was quite a masculine thing mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. One man uh, told them at a party that when they'd been dressing in men's clothes, they'd had a very handsome leg. And they replied, if you're curious, what? and lifted up their petticoats to show their leg. (laughs) That is delightful. Yeah, they're fairly delightful. Mm. Uh, I feel like every time we see a quote from them, we're like, oh yeah, you'll like that. (laughs) A lot of the quotes we read last episode was just like, oh my God. (laughs) You do love wine. They would also put on fencing demonstrations at parties. And so the biographer James Boswell met them in 1786 and said she appeared to me a man in woman's clothes. Horace Walpole, our friend. Hey, Horace. Hey, Horace. What's up? Said um, (laughs) that they were, quote, loud, noisy, and vulgar. Her hands and arms seem not to have participated of the change of sexes, but are fitter to carry a chair than a fan. Nevertheless, despite the fact that these sorts of comments are circulating, for the most part, people aren't suggesting that they're a man dressed as a woman or anything like that. If anything, they understand their masculinity as just deriving from the fact that they lived as a man for so many years and their sex remains taken for granted as being female. Right. Okay. Yeah. I guess if you were going to be a skeptic, I'm doing air quotes, at this time, like you'd have to present an explanation. Hmm for what's going on and why they've done this. Yeah, that's true. And, like, we've presented the explanation that maybe they're a trans woman or a non-binary person or something, but I assume that random sceptic journalists at the time aren't going to be bringing that up. I would love it if you were. <laughs> I really would. <laughs> I would too, but, like, I don't think it's going to be the case. I also just kind of wanted to mention this because of how, like, fake gender is. Yeah, and I mean, I guess they're acknowledging here that gender is fake. If they're like, hey, by living as a man for most of your life, you've kind of... Secretly, (laughs) everyone knows gender is fake. That's true. It's just a matter of finding where in a society people admit that. Yeah. Yeah. When you were saying earlier that 
people were saying, well, you know, you'd be able to tell by their appearance. Yeah. And I was reminded of when Alice was thinking about the fashion at the time Mm -hmm. in regards to, like, Marie Antoinette. And, you know, I'm very much like, well, at a certain point, once you're wearing that many petticoats and (laughs) dresses, then, like, I don't really think that you'd be able to tell the gender of most people. That's true, yeah. yeah. You know, that's, like, four ten-year-olds stacked on top of each other. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, and yeah, obviously gender is fake, um, but I I just think particularly in this context. Yeah, the more clothes and makeup that you hide it under, I guess the faker it is. There's yeah. like more layers of construct <laughs> on femininity at that time. Yeah, 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 that's a good way of phrasing it. As we discussed last episode, they strongly wanted to remain involved in public life and enjoy political and military and so forth opportunities that were only open to men. In 1778, France joined which war? The American Revolution? Yes. No, I would not have got that. (laughs) I've been thinking about Hamilton ever since you said 1777. Um, I was going to say, some of us need to listen to Hamilton again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Leave now. Come back in three hours. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin is in Paris getting support for the war and invites Daniel to dinner. Uh, and they have a good time, mostly because Daemon supports the Americans against England and is very in favour of France being in the war. Mm. Mm-hmm. Old Benny would have been happy about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Daemon desperately wanted to personally be involved in the war effort and petitioned the government to let them retake their uniform and go off to battle. Uh, and the government will not hear of it and instead would like Daemon to become a nun. Oh. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what? Uh, I am reminded of last episode where there was such a controversy about where they would stay in the nunnery. Mm. And now it's like, go to the nunnery. Yeah. Do You're wearing a dress over. now, get in the nunnery. Yeah. Yeah. So Louis was quite, like, happy to have Dion, like, at court and everything. And yes. now, is it Louis that's wanting them to become a nun? Or like... Everyone wants them to become a nun. <laughs> Is this so just- Louis, Louis is quite accepting of them just sort of like generally being in society but Louis mm-hmm. this entire time has been involved in the effort to try and force them into women's clothing which yeah. was very much symbolically trying to force them out of public life and into a sort of normal female role at the time which is to say like not really much of one mm-hmm. yeah and I mean I guess from Louis's perspective it's like okay we're going to welcome you into life as a woman and then we're going to set you on a path. And, you know, I imagine that Louis was like, well, we're not going to try and find you a husband. So the other option here is to send you to a nunnery hmm. in terms of, like, obviously there being fairly limited pathways for women to take in their lives in societies of that time. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also remember that uh, I believe it was the abbot of the local monastery that was near that nunnery where they didn't know where to have down sleep mm-hmm. said uh, very openly I want you to put on women's clothes because once you're wearing women's clothes then you know you'll be more easy to control mm. yeah. yeah and yeah. so yeah. Dylan was now wearing women's clothes but surprise surprise it's not easy to control yeah that's amazingly clothes do not make us the human mm. they actually do consider going to an honorary for a while going into a convent is in part a way for people to just kind of like get rid of women that they don't really have anything else to do with 
but they also do offer an intellectual environment for women which mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. there are many avenues for at this time um, as well as some measure of power and responsibility within an all-female community and mm-hmm. that's something that's quite desirable to some women mm. down goes so far as to visit several convents and sort of consider which one they would like to join but ultimately they decide they can't put aside their ambitions and they just keep writing to everyone they can think of to try and join the war. Mm. Eventually the king orders them to go home to Tonnerre, their hometown, and stay there. They agree that they will, but then dawdle at Versailles saying that they're sick from having to be uh, living such a inactive and sedentary life. They're just wasting away. They can't <laughs> go to Tonnerre now. <laughs> Very good, very good. The king <laughs> says okay and has the police arrest them in the middle of the night oh. and throws them in prison. Oh. oh, my God. They later compare this to Joan of Arc's captivity for refusing to take off a military uniform. Mm. I mean, I guess I it was quite cool. It yeah. is pretty much a, the same scenario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are eventually let out after 19 days and agree that they will abandon the effort to try and go to war and they'll go to Tonnerre. And they do. They spend most of the next six years there with their mother. And essentially the government succeeds in forcing them out of public life. They will never again hold office, go to war, or publish a book. Okay. Mm. That is disappointing and upsetting, but not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately so. Knowing as we do that they were assigned male at birth... Yes. I wonder what their mother thought of this. We will get into that later, don't okay. we? <laughs> okay. I was yes. about to say, I feel like we're going to get to this. <laughs> yeah, we will. We okay. Will. In 1778, Dion tries to return to London, but the French government refuses because France is at war with England, which seems fair. Yeah, that is fair. Given their previous, like, flirting with betraying France to the English, seems fair. Yeah. 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 The government has done lots of unfair things in this story but that one is reasonable Mm. at least they've taken the piece of paper that says we're trying to invade you off of them at this point (laughs) (laughs) after the american war of independence ended in 1783 the government was still reluctant to let them go and they only managed to leave in 1785 they never went back to france which is fair because france doesn't deserve them no it's true it's true it doesn't the french revolution begins ah yes we knew this was coming so they chose a good time to go back to england yep in 1789 four years after they managed to get the heck out of dodge and dion is initially quite a big fan of it they're very optimistic about where this is going for france a Um, lot of people were initially quite a big fan of the french revolution yeah Uh, some of whom are dead now. I, I mean, I, all, all of whom are dead, dead now. now. We hope. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to assume anything here. Uh, a gross <laughs> fact, it's the mark of a good historian. <laughs> so Dale is a member of the aristocracy, but they've also spent a long time seeing how broken the government is. And so getting a new one seems like a good plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wrote to the National Assembly asking to be reinstated into the army and given a regiment of Amazonian women to lead into battle <laughs> for France. So I assume they said no, and why? The reading of the letter to the National Assembly was interrupted several times with applause and laughter. I'm not sure how seriously it was taken given the mention of laughter. Yeah. Uh, but it was mentioned honorably in the minutes, and several people wrote to Dayon and urged them to come back. Oh, Okay. So they're a fan. Yeah, so some people were keen. Yeah. Mm. Down does not go back, mostly because they're broke. Mm. That's Uh, fair. The government has stopped sending them money since the revolution started. Mm -hmm. That's also fair. I mean, the government has no money. Yeah. Yeah. This is a notorious part of the French Revolution. Uh, And it's, it's, you know, it's 
They're obviously quite hard up for money and struggling, but it's perhaps lucky because the revolution becomes much more radical after this point and Louis XVI and many aristocrats are killed and they cease being optimistic about it at this point and start to view the architects of the revolution as monsters and the revolution itself is basically an apocalypse for France. And that's all we'll say about that period of history. (laughs) They spend a lot of their later years writing their memoirs. In 1805, they signed a deal for a 10-volume work. About them? About them. That's... Okay. Now, they were born in 1827? 1728. Sorry, 1728. So all of those numbers, yes. Yes. 1728, and it's now 1785. It's now 1805 when they signed that. Oh, it's now 1805. So they're, like, quite old. Yeah, yeah, they are, yeah. And they've signed a deal for a 10-volume... Yep. Did anyone... Involved in this think that this was going to get finished? Well, I assume the publishers who gave them advance money did, uh, but these memoirs were not published. And they were fools to think that. Maybe so. (laughs) Uh, So they do write a lot of stuff. We Mm -hmm. have like a few thousand pages of stuff Mm -hmm. that they wrote. And because this is never published, these papers just sort of languished in private hands until they were sold to the University of Leeds in 1930, where they still are today. You can go and see them. Have they been translated into English? No. So let's talk about the memoirs. These memoirs are written for a public that understands them to have been assigned female at birth, and they are therefore quite fictionalised. Okay. Nevertheless, they're still the major source we have for their perspective on a lot of the events of their life, and historians often understand them in writing these to not just be sort of writing a fictional story justifying their fictional biography to the public, but also as genuinely exploring their own feelings about gender and their life and... I don't know, other stuff, wine probably. (laughs) (laughs) So we can try and sort of read between the lines and have a crack at discussing what they're thinking and feeling. Okay. So essentially what this is going to be is us being like, how trans are they? Uh, So because of that, it's probably worth first uh, talking about what we already know about their gender. Uh, And I'm going to try not to recap too much here. Dion seems to have been actively involved in the public shift in the understanding of their sex. We can't ever know how the rumours began that they were a woman, or if, as Gary Cates thinks, they started them themselves. However, they were the one who made it a condition of their return from exile that the French government recognised them publicly as a woman. When a man was sent over from France to ascertain the truth of their sex, they told him they were a woman. They also had a collection of books about women that was unique in contemporary private libraries. Uh, evidencing that women and women's roles in society and their capabilities and so forth was something that they were actively thinking about. We should also note that there is considerable ambivalence evidenced in their letters and so forth to the lengthy public debate over their sex, as well as having to wear women's clothes. Although this is at least partially due to, as we've been going into in this episode as well, them sort of losing privileges that they've previously had and also, you know, having like a mob of people like questioning personal things about you is never fun Mm. at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It is also possible that this is evidence of a more deep-seated ambivalence about living as a woman. Nevertheless, I find it difficult personally to accept the theory that they're just a cisgender man who transitioned for other reasons. Yeah, I don't think there's a valid explanation for that yeah i feel based on the evidence that has been presented to us and based on the what you seem to have 
like the deeper reading that you seem to have done. Yeah, I, f- I feel that the reading that they're, you know, a man who just did this for political expediency or something like that ultimately raises more questions than it answers. And until someone answers those questions effectively, I don't feel the need to entertain that theory further. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so much of this story is them rebelling against the limited role that women play in that society. Don't know why you would be you know, presenting as a woman for mm. personal gain and influence in society when you literally are rebelling against the fact that women do not have that influence in society at the same time. Yeah, the argument tends to be that um, the only reason they're able to return from exile is because they, like, became a woman and therefore, I don't know, I guess, became politically non-threatening. Mm. Uh, but, I like, I still think that's absolute hooey and I don't care about it and we're not just discussing it anymore, <laughs> unless <laughs> you want to. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it seems yeah. ridiculous. And the fact that they're the one who set the condition that they'd be yeah. recognised as a woman just kind of... And also, you know, like, they come back from France to England and just keep living as a woman for the rest of their life, like... Like, we may not be able to say 100% confidently what their gender identity was, hmm. but cis man... Is out, yeah. We've is, cut that one. Yeah, we've cut that one. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, the rest of, of this episode is essentially us saying, we're confident that they're trans. Mm-hmm. What kind? Yeah. <laughs> As we've said, there's clearly some conflict here about womanhood or just traditional female social roles at the time and so I guess the question I want us to think about as we go through these examples is is that just an issue they have with the restrictions women have to live under or is that more likely a reaction to womanhood also not really fitting just as manhood doesn't we're going to talk about three key episodes from the memoirs Uh, I will quickly note that these stories are not ones that they make up for the memoirs they're ones that they've been sort of telling for a while before that Mm -hmm. uh, just to avoid confusion so first of all obviously they have to kind of alter their childhood they tell us and it is true that their parents first child was a daughter and the second was a son who died at six months Dion records that when their mother became pregnant with them their father said my dear wife if you give me another girl i will make her into a boy in order to replace my only dead son and to punish you so that's a lot to unpack. Moving on. <laughs> and then when Dylan was born, a baby girl, they were instead announced to be a boy and raised as a son and the rest is history. I should know that their father died in 1749, so it does not get the opportunity to contradict them. We will talk about their mother in a second. Okay. So this story gives a reason for them having lived as a man despite quote-unquote really being a woman and kind of effectively shifts the blame off of that onto their father Mm -hmm. uh so we talked about how a woman deciding to live as a man for a while is something that society could be on board with Mm -hmm. but you needed to have a good reason and Mm. i mean i didn't even decide this my dad just did this to me and then i turned out to be amazing at everything Mm. uh it's pretty good it's pretty good reason yeah it's a pretty good narrative yeah they also altered their time in russia So, uh, as we discussed in the last episode, they facilitated secret correspondence between Elizabeth and Louis XV. Yep. According to Dion, and this is when we get into the fake part of the story, Elizabeth liked this idea but was embarrassed by her French and asked for a French woman to be arranged as tutor who could also translate the letters into code. Dion is the only suitable person for this. So apparently Conti, who was the head of this spy organization way back when, and who was no longer relevant. Yes, I um, remember Conti. Yeah, I remember Conti. Good guy, what's he up to these days? (laughs) Uh, 
knew that Dale was a girl and entreated them to take on the role of a woman so as to serve this key function that no one else could. Ah, uh, yes, the story that's on their Wikipedia page. As Is fact? It? Yeah. Did you look at their Wikipedia page? Uh, yeah, at some point. Like, okay. I, think, I think it may have been before I was going to be in this episode. Okay. Yeah, interestingly, this uh, story kind of held water for a long time, and I think that Gary Cates is the person who debunked it. I don't really understand how this happened, to the extent that I'm kind of wondering if Cates, like, left out some facts that I don't understand or something. Mm. Uh, because once you know that they were not assigned female at birth, I don't understand how you think this could happen. But yeah, people do just repeat as fact that, like... Yeah, they when they were in Russia would dress as a woman and yeah, like when I say it's diplomatic facts. When I say it's on their Wikipedia page, it's I don't from memory. It's in like the introductory section. I see. It's not even like its own. It's not even like under a personal oh, life okay. entry. It's like you know this person who was famous for doing this and dressing as a woman in the court of Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, so Kate says that you know this isn't true, mm. uh, and sort of points to the fact that uh, first of all it doesn't really make any sense. Mm. Uh, second of all. Like, there aren't any mentions of this in correspondence between, like, Conti and Louis and all of the involved people at mm. the time. Like, the, we start seeing mentions of this when Daniel has transitioned and is living as a woman and is telling people all of the cool spy stuff they used to do. Yep. So, like, seems fake. Yeah, yeah, and, like, totally understandable why French society at the time wouldn't be able to understand that it was fake. It probably seemed fairly reasonable to them it's just like oh yeah you did a bunch of cool spy stuff because mm. they didn't have access to these co this correspondence between Conti and Louis mm. that we now have yeah but like I'm I'm fairly comfortable just treating that as something they made up um, oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah thought yeah. it sounded cool and I think the reasons for doing so are obvious it also lends legitimacy to their decision to live as a man by making it clear that Louis the Fifteenth was aware that they were a woman dressed as a man from early on, mm. and was nevertheless all on board for supporting their political career. Mm -hmm. Also, Louis the Fifteenth apparently supported them taking on the role of a woman again, specifically in order to be politically useful. Um, mm -hmm. So this story originates in the late 1770s when Dion is trying to convince the French government, that they could still be politically useful, that they could be politically involved. And so they have this story where they're saying, you know, not only was I involved in a political situation as a woman before, mm -hmm. the fact that I was a woman in that setting was key to French success. It wasn't incidental. It was why I was mm -hmm. so effective in that moment. Mm. So what if I did that again? To which yeah. I say no, mm -hmm. but, you know, like... Good go. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. smart. Yeah, mm. they're, once again, they're weaving a very cohesive narrative. Mm. This would make for a great biopic, but, like, obviously... Based on be... their fake memoir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is an anime. Oh. What? It's, like, nothing to do with them, really. <laughs> okay. But it is, like, named after them. Oh, okay. What uh, is look, it? Look, I don't know. Okay. Just let Japan be. There's an anime of... Almost everything. While they were resisting being dressed as a woman, once they'd come back from exile, they went to Tonnet to visit their mother. According to Dayon, when they arrived, their mother fainted to see them in uniform, and then begged them to assume female clothing. They have her say, I cannot conceive of why you would want to continue wearing your uniform. Can't you see that people are laughing at you? Since everyone knows that you were declared to be female in London and in Paris, this masquerade serves only to perpetuate rumour and scandal. And they record a lot of conversation to that effect. Uh, and then eventually Dion agrees with their mother, all right, I will dress as a woman. And in response, their mother rejoices. Mm. So that, I guess, is made up. 
uh, obviously their mother isn't coming to this from the point of view of you know knowing that they have a cisgender daughter who has been masquerading as a man because their husband said they had to mm-hmm. uh, so this is at least somewhat fictionalized but it's interesting to think about what their mother did think and we, we don't know we don't know we just have no yeah recorded no, I mean, statements yeah. from them yeah unfortunately it's also interesting that they chose to write their mother being like why are you in uniform mm. can't you see people laughing at you and so on when we know that they really wanted to stay in uniform mm. but that, they've written their mother as being very against that that is really interesting and shows a sort of complexity of scheming <laughs> um, that reminds me of last episode when we were talking about whether or not they started the rumors about themselves and I'm not necessarily saying that I'm now convinced that they started the rumors about themselves but it certainly seems mildly more plausible to me having now heard these stories that they oh, tell yeah. about themselves yeah. in their own writings yes. that are very clearly trying to manipulate a very particular narrative about their own identity so yeah color me you know 10% more persuaded. <laughs> I'm like reasonably persuaded that they could have invented the rumors about themselves. Well, yeah, but you just said you're reasonably persuaded that they could have invented. I think none of us are, none of us are denying that they could have done that, but like... Did they? Yeah. Don't, don't equivocate if you're going to say I'm reasonably persuaded, <laughs> Alice. <laughs> fair, fair. It would not be out of character, let's say that. Yeah, yeah, not entirely out of character. I think I'm fairly willing to accept that they started the rumors like first of all i in no way think that is beyond their capabilities Mm. or Mm. like the sort of layers of depth they would go into in the scheme Mm. but also like if they you know as we've kind of talked about you know they're on board with this and once the train is in motion they help move it along Mm. it's weird that that's just coincidentally a thing that happened yeah if they were like i would like to transition and live as a woman oh coincidentally someone started a rumor that i'm actually a woman i guess i'll just go for it then yeah, and the fact mm. that it got out of hand and resulted in some pretty bad things for them personally is not really out of character for their schemes. Generally. Yeah, it really isn't. So, yeah, their schemes are complex that... and intriguingly executed and often have mm. consequences that they did not foresee. Yeah, I remember the time when they were like, hey, we're giving you a demotion that you expected, and they were like, bite me, I'm barricading myself in this house, and then they ruined their entire career. Yeah. yeah. And they thought yeah. that was going to end well for them. I, I mean, I can't assume they did. Like, like, you know, certainly at the point where they were like, no, you can't demote me, they clearly I guess thought they that thought was that was going to work, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I feel like I'm not intelligent enough to, like, follow along with their schemes. Like, I'm trying to think of why they would have depicted their mother as being against them wearing uniform, for example. And I'm sure if I got layers deep enough, I could find a way this kind of made sense and worked for them. I don't know. I kind of... The way I was sort of thinking about it was that, like... So, obviously, they were very internally conflicted about what they should do at this point once they're in France and they can't leave France and they're being pressured to start dressing as a woman. Mm. And so they must have had this internal dialogue going on of, like, okay, I should do it because of this reason. No, I can't, and so forth. And I kind of imagined that they just gave to their mother one of the strands of what they were thinking at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Saying, you know, can't you see people are laughing at you? This isn't doing anything except perpetuating scandal. Just give in and you'll be happy. They must have thought that to themselves. Yeah. 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 And then they did give in. Yeah. Yeah. So that was how I read it. That makes yeah, sense Yeah, I too. mean, and certainly, yeah, the stories that you're telling that they wrote definitely come across as someone to some extent 
almost wish fulfillment mm. as like well this could have been like particularly the um the spy stuff in russia yeah. and uh, these mm. you know having the divine backing of louis mm. yeah um, um you know in an era where mo- the monarch's power was absolute mm. not for long but yeah no, yeah yeah <laughs> well, getting very close to the end of mm. that so it's interesting to think about their mother's perspective but obviously as we've been talking about it's more interesting to think about what it says about Dion one of the things they have their mother say that I think is particularly interesting is you have to be either one or the other you're destined to be female accept it since you had the weakness to wear a uniform in war you have to have the strength to wear a dress during peacetime how can you still have the folly to think that you'll be exempt from this universal law that's really interesting in terms of thinking about their writing not so much as a straightforward biography as an internal dialogue that they're experiencing Mm. and the points of view going back and forth in their mind because yeah the fact that they put those words into the mouth of their mother who they clearly you know this character of their mother they clearly disagree with to some extent because of the aforementioned desire on their part to wear the uniform so the fact that they then chose to put this very binary understanding of gender explicitly laid out by this character of their mother is interesting in terms of what Mm. it says about what they maybe were wrestling with Mm. i thought it was interesting because their mother's essentially arguing with them about if they should take on the social role of being a conventional woman or if they should continue to occupy a visibly and socially ambiguous gendered position Mm. and i think going back to that question of is this about social roles Mm. or is this about something more core about their identity? Mm. Uh, I think it's an interesting quote to think about in that light. If it is them kind of talking about how they felt torn at that time, considering the possibility that they might've been on binary, having them literally say, why do you think you're exempt from this social law that people have to be one or the other? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Where they're they're trying to not be, but they're being forced into that box. Hmm. Similarly of their time in Russia, they talk about how they were quite apprehensive, but then once they were in that role as a woman, they really flourished. They went to Russia, apparently, with two trunks, one of men's clothes and one of women's clothes, and they lived a double life. They tutored Elizabeth as a woman, and then they acted as secretary to the Chevalier Andrew Douglas as a man. And Douglas asked them, apparently what role they preferred and Dion replied I would prefer to keep my male clothes because they open all the doors to fortune glory and courage dresses only give me room to cry about the misery and servitude of women and you know that I am crazy about liberty but nature has come to oppose me and to make me feel the need for women's clothes that I can sleep eat and study in peace and they reiterate this conflicting desire to have a career and to be able to financially support their family on the one hand Mm. which they associate with living as a man Mm. and the desire to be able to study and to write in peace that they associate with womanhood Mm. Uh, which I thought was really interesting it's not something that really comes up that much again Kate's the biographer I read didn't really pick up on it and expand on it too much Mm. but they end this sort of monologue with here are the two passions of my heart the one moves me to the right the other to the left I do not know how to escape from this Cretan labyrinth that's some big gender moods Mm. like again like trans woman who wants to be able to be a spy or non-binary person who is wrestling with the fact that in society they have to live as one or the other it's really interesting that passage about feeling comfortable to kind of study and be sort of sedentary and reflect only when taking on the social role of a woman Mm. given you know we've kind of talked a bit already about how opportunities for women to be intellectual 
um, were fairly limited mm. in the society and you know generally it's men who are considered to be the great intellectuals and also the great warriors but on that passage Dayon seems to be kind of drawing a line between the masculine as the kind of active warrior type and the feminine as the more scholarly type which mm. is kind of interesting to me yeah i thought it was interesting as well because um their life is marked by this really intense desire to stay and this great effort to stay involved in political life but their life is also marked by these periods of withdrawal from that mm. and a lot of the time that seems fairly involuntary you know they when they're in london and there's this massive debate going on about what sex they are they often go off to their friend's house in the country where they can just sort of walk and read and peace and so forth and that seemed nice for them like they enjoyed that but it was something that was born out of circumstance mm. um you know similarly when they're back in france they go off to Tonnerre sometimes so they don't really enjoy being but like life in Versailles can be too much mm. also you know the period where they seem to kind of hatch this plan that they, they're going to transition they're in this kind of enforced decade long period of sort of inactivity where all they're really doing is reading and writing and so forth um, and that's kind of the moment that we can guess maybe their real like solid identification with not being a man is taking shape yeah. so I don't know some stuff's going on there. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Hmm. A large portion of their memoirs is taken up with religious writing. So they've always technically been a Catholic, but sometime between 1777 and 1780, they really find Jesus. In their biography, they link their spiritual transition with their gender one, and their theological writings give them another opportunity to just sort of talk about how they feel about gender. Cool. I'm so intrigued. They all viewed the body as being inherently sinful. The only recourse therefore for for existing in this inherently sinful body is to adhere to christianity and eventually after death you will be relieved from this sinful state they say god gives everyone a body as he sees fit it is engulfed in corruption it will be reborn incorruptible it is engulfed in weakness it will be reborn in strength it is engulfed in horror it will be reborn in glory yeah christians are like this yeah, i guess that's true <laughs> i mean i would not know this is some like standard christian like cool stuff like i mean you know like this is the extent to which i you know was raised culturally christian but not have no understanding of religion the closest i have come to this kind of rhetoric is, is the like, simpsons no i was gonna say daredevil <laughs> oh true what happens in daredevil he's like super catholic he's so catholic. oh i didn't know yeah, like, i think I think, okay, let's get into this for a bit. So Daredevil and the Chevalier Dion, I think we can make a number of parallels here to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time for that, but I think you could do it. Yeah. Anyway, a queer fiction episode. Look. <sighs> put a pin in that. I wish that show was more queer. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this elderly trans feminine person's feelings about Jesus now. Mm-hmm. They further believed that, quote, all differences in a person's condition will disappear at the last judgment, explicitly including sex, uh, and they turned to scripture to confirm this claim in arguments influenced by feminist literature they'd read. So this is a common thing that uh, feminist writers at the time will say. So they cite um, Deuteronomy 10.17, which they, or the source that I read at least, translate as, God has no regard whatsoever for the appearance of persons. I decided to consult my Handley JPS version of the Tanakh, and they translate that part as, um, you know, God who shows no favor, with no, like, explicit mention of, like, the form. Oh, okay. Uh, so I don't really know what's going on there. I'm not, 
you know, I, I can't read the Hebrew. I regret that. Dale could read the Hebrew. Okay. Uh, incidentally, which so, is impressive. If so, that... who knows? They might be extrapolating. Who knows? But this is how they understood it. Yeah. In any case. They likewise cited Paul to the Galatians, saying, quote, male and female, for you're all one person in Christ Jesus. So as it was the case that physical sex made no difference to God, we should therefore pay as little attention as possible to sex and gender differences. Okay. On the basis of their theology, just to chill things out for a minute, Dion had a major problem with Jews. Okay. Yeah. Because Jews celebrate the human body and don't view it as sinful, and they still don't, and they're right. Um. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to go any further than that particular statement on any religion. Yeah. Um, There's but... a lot of things where you can't be like, this religion is correct, mm. but like not viewing uh, bodies as corrupt seems healthy and good. Um, So Dion criticised the practice of circumcision, for example, because it was an acknowledgement of the existence of the penis and therefore of sexual differentiation. They also have a problem with men. In their theology, men who were sexist turned away from God, which seems reasonable. That seems fair, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Furthermore, they understood masculinity and male privilege uh, as meaning that men were encouraged to celebrate and indulge in earthly pleasures in a way that women were not. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it was better to be a woman. So I think this is kind of my like final nail in the like their trans thing, where yeah. they have this like lengthy theology about like here's why being a woman is inherently superior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This person has not only constructed a fictionalized version of their own history, they've also constructed a not fictionalized but a heavily personal interpretation yes. of their religion, all of which fits a narrative of trans identity. Yeah. They also put great stress on virginity as a morally pure and highly desirable state. Sounds pretty Uh, Catholic. They pointed to the Virgin Mary and to the virginity of Christ, which I understand is debated, maybe? I mean, I feel like from the church's perspective, Christ is Okay, okay, that's a thing. Okay, cool. Good to know. (laughs) I don't know, I just understand there's some discourse around this, but I've never gotten into it. The greater likelihood of remaining a virgin was one of the key positive attributes of womanhood, according to them. Sorry. Is this because women aren't encouraged to engage in earthly pleasures like men are? Is that yeah? Okay, I'm just trying to follow what's happening. Yeah, here. you know. Yeah. Okay. Cool. They say the more I reflect on it, the more I feel that virginity is the greatest gift of virtue from God. They emphasize strongly in their writing that they are still a virgin, and they're very thankful for that, and they're very proud of that. Saying there is no sexuality whatsoever in the kingdom of God. Men will not take wives there, nor women husbands. We will serve one another like angels. And so we just discussed how they created this personal theology to make sense of and to express their feelings about gender. And I think it's fairly evident that they have also created a theology to make sense of and express the fact that they're asexual. Yeah? Yeah. So like, there's not a lot more material that I have on that, so I regret it not being a pervasive part of this episode, but like, this person's just definitely asexual. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I think you've been kind of building towards that for several points now. There's definitely been hints at that in a lot of what you've been saying, I think, for the last probably 15 minutes. There's been things that you've said where it's like, oh, yeah, okay. And then the fact that you then ended by having this bit about... Here's my ace card. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it felt very natural. It didn't feel like you were pulling this from nowhere. Okay, good. I'm glad. That seems less controversial than anything else we're talking about yeah. yeah i mean yeah no one's argued that they're not asexual but that's just because scholars don't know what asexual people are um, yeah so i'm sorry yeah. asexual people. but i'm glad that we have another one to add to our little collection of ace episodes that we should keep adding to in ways that are not five minutes 
Yeah, that's the problem. It usually is five minutes. I find it interesting that they have this theology building Catholicism around asexuality. And when we talked about Christina of Sweden, they did a similar thing when they were attracted to Catholicism because of the celibacy aspect of Catholicism, the value Catholicism puts on that. Oh, interesting. I think we've touched on this before about how, like, with trans things and with ace things, that there are a bunch of sort of, like, cultural contexts that you can find for this, where, like, there very much is a history to be built out of this. Hmm. It's just a shame that greater social awareness of people being transgender and of people being asexual is so new that that history isn't being really written yet. But I really do believe that some, like, amazing ace historian is going to come out with some great texts, like, contextualizing exactly things like this. Mm-hmm. within what it so obviously is yeah uh, and i can't wait for us to like slowly put all of those pieces together so i think that a lot of people who talk about like there not being any trans people um before i don't know like christine jorgensen or whatever often are kind of like well there was no like concept of that within society and there have always been concepts within society that people have you know people have always used whatever puzzle pieces of how their society understands gender mm. that are available to them to create a context in which their own experiences make sense like yep. this stuff exists we just have to put the effort in yeah yeah. Because they're quite poor later in their life, uh, because France is having a moment, they're forced to sell off all of their books and they also enter into fencing tournaments. So they're in their like 70s and they're doing these fencing tournaments and they are winning, obviously. <laughs> that, that was like real sad because they lost all their books, but yeah. also like the fact that they're entering and winning fencing tournaments in their 70s is delightful. Mm. So I'm having like a, yeah. a big mood swing yeah. right now. They are just kind of good at everything. They're so great. In 1796, they fight in their last fencing tournament. They do get too old uh, to comfortably keep that up. Mm-hmm. And for the last 14 years of their life, they quite quietly share an apartment in London with a woman named Mrs. Cole. Mrs. Cole had been the wife of a British naval officer, but now both she and Dion have fallen on hard times. And so they're, you know, like share housing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah trying to make ends meet. Dion is often quite ill in these last 14 years, and so it's not a surprise when Mrs. Cole finds them dead on the 21st of May, 1810. They lived a long life. They really did, yeah. So they lived to 82. Yes. Roughly. 81 or 82. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Yeah, that's a pretty good run. It is, yes. Mrs. Cole decided to prepare the body for death, uh, and it's during this process that she undresses Dion and discovers that they have a penis. She's quite shocked by this and goes to tell some friends. And they advise her to get experts in on the matter so they can verify this because this is a very unusual, unexpected situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a group of like 10 to 12 guys end up coming to look at their body. That's an unnecessary number of people. When you say guys, were they doctors? Just like some oh, well- dudes? <laughs> off the street no so there's a couple of surgeons there's a professor of anatomy there's a journalist there's a lawyer there's some other guys I don't know what they do right okay yeah that makes more sense so they like you know have some kind of relevant credentials for looking at the genitals of a dead elderly trans person is where we're at here I guess yeah and they verify that they were in their words, a man and not a woman or hermaphrodite. Mm -hmm. So we have an account of this uh, published by Thomas Plummer, who was an editor who worked with Dion on the 10,000 memoirs that they never published. The sources that I read, unfortunately, had little to nothing to say about the immediate reaction of the public to the announcement about their body, Mm. uh, which is a shame because I want to (laughs) know. Nevertheless, it was clear that fairly quickly public interest in them waned. 
So, you know, it therefore seems that when Daon was understood as a woman who addressed as a man in order to serve her country, they were praised, but when the public understood them as a man who addressed as a woman, they were ignored. At the end of the 19th century, biographers began to look at their life and to become interested in them again, and they generally viewed Daon as this bizarre case of deception, you know, they'd pulled the greatest hoax of the century, um, and sometimes they're sort of admired for this, and sometimes people are really really upset about it Uh, and their motivations for this aren't really seriously considered Uh, some think it's for publicity or to rehabilitate their career or because they're crazy we don't need to talk about these biographies they're not any good all of those theories are bad yes in the early 20th century Havelock Ellis uh, who was a pioneering British physician in the field of sexuality and gender developed a different idea about Daniel's motivations and this moves from bad to firmly mixed (laughs) Dale Ellis contended was not deceiving anyone and was not trying to pull off a hoax rather they had an obsessive impulse to live as a woman so Ellis differentiated this from sexual behaviour saying that such people were not inherently gay and also it wasn't inherently anything to do with cross-dressing saying the inversion here is in the affective and emotional sphere and in this large sphere the minor symptom of cross-dressing is insignificant so as I say a very mixed bag okay the minimizing of clothing was his reason for coining the term aeonism in comparison wait wait what was that word you said aeonism how do you spell that so daon e-o-n oh right i understand yeah, yeah okay yeah, so it's coined for the name it's yeah. not a word so that you basically heard another... basically i've got the daon disease <laughs> is the idea here. And this is in comparison to the German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld's term transvestism, uh, which was used to describe uh, people that we would now call transgender, as well as just like people who were not trans but liked to dress in the clothes of the opposite sex for whatever reason. Havelock Ellis was very influential and his work helped redefine understanding of what we now understand as trans people from a moral to a medical issue. So, you know, mixed bag. Mm, mm. Nevertheless, the term aeonism didn't stick around and uh, the word transsexual becomes the dominant term and then it doesn't. Despite the word aeonism falling out of favour, the general concept that Ellis had helped articulate stuck around and this becomes the dominant way of understanding Daon for quite a while. I wasn't actually able to get a copy of any of these unfortunately but Gary Cates refers to multiple biographers such as Edna Nixon and Cynthia Cox who write biographies in the 1960s who both conceptualised Daon as trans apparently. Hmm. Which is wild. So unlike other historical trans figures we've discussed there is a prominent biographical tradition that understands Daon as trans which is wild. And that's Kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, Cates himself says, To contemporary readers, Dale wanted to explain why a woman who was raised as a man and lived as a man would want to change back into a woman. To posterity, Dale was sincerely, if implicitly, trying to explain why a man might choose to live as a woman. Which is worded not in the way we'd ideally word it, but is an articulation of trans identity. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's certainly, like, it's not fundamentally different from what we've been yeah. saying. Yes. Similarly, in an introduction to published excerpts of their papers, uh, the editors say, uh, in reference to a text they wrote about Christian women who had lived and dressed as men uh, for a bit, that Dion was using this to, quote, create a social context and historic tradition for his transgendered life, but also to give it legitimacy and spiritual meaning, which I feel is also fundamentally what we've been Mm. saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
Despite this willingness to use the word transgender, however, you'll notice that there's still a lack of commitment here. So scholars are willing to refer to Dion as living a transgendered life or having had a transgendered experience, but they certainly stop short of describing them as a transgender person. All of these writers also refer to Dion as he and a man and seem to understand them as such. Uh, so let's talk about why. And we're mostly going to talk about Gary Cates here because main English biographer. So, despite how easily his reading of Dion leads to an understanding of them as transgender, Gary Cates vehemently denies that Dion can be understood as such. I made maybe 7,000 words of, like, of this section in my first draft, and I've cut that down immensely. For um, which we are very thankful. Yeah. At some point I was like, I've written a thesis on why Gary Cates is wrong, and then I deleted that. <laughs> I am the cheaty of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it is true. But um, at least you were self-aware enough to delete it yourself. Yeah. You didn't have to have an immortal being pointed out to you. Yeah. The reason why Kate doesn't think they're trans is because his sources for what it means to be trans come from contemporary sexologists and psychologists. So this book is published in 1995. To Kate's, therefore, determining whether Dion is trans is a matter of establishing whether they meet diagnostic criteria for an illness. If they, in Kate's words, exhibit the kind of dysphoric behaviour that would lead a physician today toward a diagnosis of transsexualism. There's an expression on my face that uh, you as the listener cannot see, but I imagine you share having yeah. just heard that. We all just sit here in silence for a minute together, making a face. Cool, we've done that, let's move on. And I, I really struggled with this a lot, because I read a lot about this, but it kind of isn't even worth debunking. Kate doesn't know what being trans is. He can't proceed to then make statements about it. His entire argument is void and wrong. Thank you very much for listening. We've been <laughs> 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 to take his argument at face value for a moment... I'm sorry, but I guess we will. Kate says that transsexuals know they're trans from childhood, that they despise their genitalia, and that they feel trapped in their own body. There is no evidence, Kate says, that they don't experience any of this, therefore not trans. I'm calling shenanigans. <laughs> Uh, it is true that there is nowhere in the sources we have where Dion talks about how they identified as a woman or non-binary or whatever in childhood or where they write down, I really hate my penis. But I would like for us to imagine exactly how we would have that written down in a source. Also, I mean, they wrote a fictionalized version of their childhood where they were assigned female at birth, which... In terms of, mm. I identified as a woman as a child. Yeah, is yeah about I as mean, conclusive as you're gonna get in this kind of situation. Exactly. As, yeah. as you were just pointing out. Yes. We're not going to get yeah so the kind of evidence that Kate wants. Mm. So they're largely restricted to the sort of narrative, um, given that like our main source is either their memoirs or like letters they wrote to friends where they're presenting themselves as having been assigned female at birth having this story where they're like i was i had to live as a man for a long time because my parents decided to raise me that way but i'm a woman and i'm going back to that now like yeah that's a very coherent way for a trans woman to conceptualize her life yeah they develop a theology about how when they go to heaven after they die they will lose all sex characteristics and then it'll be great mm. like 
that's not definitely dysphoria, but I think declaring that there's absolutely no hint of dysphoria in any of their papers is wrong. Yep. So yeah. uh, what else have you got, Kate? Such diagnostic criteria is only the surface of why Kate doesn't think Dylan is trans, though. There is so much more going on here. Uh, so I'm going to read a really long quote now. Kate says, The problem with pinning a psychosexual disorder on Dion is that it minimizes his own will and cognition in the process of his own gender transformation. Interpreting Dion as a transsexual renders him fundamentally passive. His gender transformation is seen as something that happened to him, the result of a genetic defect or childhood experiences, rather than a process that he freely brought upon himself as a mature adult. Instead of an active intellect, aware of his choices, and even trying to change his society, Dion is portrayed in this interpretation as a victim of an illness whose only fate is to suffer. What? Kate's, 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 Kate's my man. Would you write a book about physics? No, because you don't understand anything about physics, I presume. I don't know your life. So why did you write a book about this? And we could go through that in a lot of depth, that one quote. But I don't think it's necessarily worthwhile. I mean, it is very clear that Kate's understanding of transgender identities is, as we've said, completely wrong Mm. and Mm -hmm. based on very limited sources that had a very specific understanding Mm. of what being trans was Mm -hmm. that in you know the modern day i.e less than 30 years later we are have moved away from almost completely having been in gender therapy that is phrased slightly too strong but i agree with you mostly Mm. Yeah, like it's, you know, he has a completely shallow understanding of what being trans is, reflecting the inadequacy of where he decided to look to for authority on this matter. What I think is also interesting about his understanding of Dion is that I think on some level, Gary Cades and I have similar reactions to these, like, you know, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s sexologists, Mm. you know, we're having the same reaction that the medical discourse that built up around the transgender experience in the last, like, century, roughly, is completely inadequate to encapsulate the lives of the people that it purports to explain and their active involvement with their own identities and their own cultural moments. And what is unfortunate is that instead of questioning the authority of the medical establishment to talk about this, he accepts their narrative wholeheartedly and questions whether it can be applied to Dion. Cates has a lot of respect and empathy and I think insight into Dion's life. I have relied very heavily on his work and I think he makes some excellent points about this person. But in basically declaring that it's impossible to to respect Dion and understand them as trans, he refuses to extend that respect and that empathy to any other trans person. Yeah, yeah. That was a really good encapsulation of, I think, the faces that we've been making for the past 20 minutes and a lot of the feelings that I've been having as you've been describing this. Um, You read that quote to me months ago, maybe, and I was upset by it then. I'm much more upset by it now, having you know, spent several hours... With Dion as with a person. With Dion, yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you, having spent a lot more time with them, that would have hit really hard. And I think it's important to stress that even though this book is, like, 25 years old, even though the 1990s were a very different time for trans people, Gary Cates had access to other voices, mm-hmm. and he completely fails to utilise them or to treat them as a source of authority, even when they're speaking about their own lives. Mm-hmm. There is, like, one or two instances where he briefly mentions quotes by trans women but he does not go into their understanding of their lives at all does he also think that those women 
um, you know, like I'm thinking particularly of the trans activist Sandy Stone, who is a fantastic thinker, um, and of uh, the biographer Jen Morris, who mm-hmm. is a, a travel writer and a trans woman and an articulate person. Does he think that those two women are just driven by a compulsion and an illness and do not actively engage with their own societies and their own lives? Like, does he think that? You know, because I don't think that he really does. Mm. But he needs to work through some stuff because that's the narrative that he's putting out into the world. So to sum up, the issue is both that the authority then and still somewhat now is with the medical establishment and that individual scholars keep appealing to that authority. I lastly want to point out that by defining transgenderism by contemporary diagnostic criteria, Cates has created a standard for being a real trans person that can only be met by a modern day person who sits down in a psychiatrist's office and submits to psychoanalysis. And even then, not all of them. Mm. Um, You know, because we can't gather the data necessary to make a diagnosis according to this criteria, you know, we talked about like, let's try and think of somewhere in their uh, memoirs where they described how much they hated their own penis. Cates has effectively destroyed any possibility of situating trans experiences in history. You know, he has, whether he means to or not, declared trans history as null and void. And that's not good enough. So, um, do better and talk to trans people. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, it is incredibly disappointing to see that the scholarship is doing this, and especially what you said about how Cates was so close in a lot of ways so close to a really interesting and valuable examination of Daon's trans experience mm. and particularly given the discussion that we've had about you know whether this person could be articulated as a trans woman or as a non-binary person or as something else and the parts of the literature that you have talked about where it's been frustrating because there hasn't necessarily been in-depth research put into them and how those parts of their history and their memoirs would be incredibly valuable to that discussion. Yeah, it's it's just really mm. frustrating. And but it does mean that there is some fantastic work yet to come, I think. Like, this more than any other episode that we have done has made me be like, I'm doing a thesis. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I'm the person to do that because I don't speak French and probably can never speak French. But, you know, many people do speak French, and we can all be inspired by that. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, I think this is part of why we do this podcast, right? Is telling stories like these, and hopefully one of the things that we do is inspire other people to absolutely take up the cause of queer history and research into queer people Mm. like i'm not sure if it was the paulie murray episode maybe but i've definitely Mm. ended like trans history episodes by just like yelling at trans people to go into history (laughs) you did do that yeah i believe that was the paulie murray episode and i stand by that like it it sucks that trans history is so young right now but Mm. it does mean that you can feel so palpably as a trans person that your voice is needed and is valuable yeah um and you can take some comfort from that at least i think uh i also just want to mention that i i feel like i've worried before that the further back we go the harder it will be to find someone who we're actually like yeah that's a trans person Mm -hmm. you know i feel like a lot of the time when we do these episodes are on 20th century figures and there's already such uh like hurdle we have to get over in terms of arguing that they actually are trans there so i just you know 
Dao, I think, is definitely trans and also definitely amazing. Mm. Mm. And it was really fun to spend a bunch of time with them mm. uh, talking about how wine is what makes society good and how the French government can bite them uh, and how, you know, women are absolutely the tip top of society. Yeah. So, you know, 10 out of 10 would read thousands of pages of memoirs again. I did not read thousands of pages of memoirs. That was a lie. <laughs> 10 out of 10 will read thousands of pages of memoirs? 10 out of 10 would attempt to learn French on Duolingo and fail again. <laughs> oh... With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. Uh, we're Queer as Fact on all of them. Um, you can also support us if you would like to by going to our Redbubble store and buying some merch that you can then place on or around your body. Uh, you can also throw us some spare change on Patreon if you would like to. We very much appreciate anyone who does that speaking of our patrons we want to give a big shout out and heartfelt thanks to caro savola thank you very much for supporting us we do not take it for granted you can find more of our episodes on spotify podbean apple podcasts and wherever you listen to your podcasts uh if you listen to us on apple podcasts especially please rate and review it really helps us to find a bigger audience if you do review us, we will maybe read it out on this podcast. Uh, and to prove the veracity of that statement to you, I will read you one right now. Ooh, exciting. So this review is from Jesse from the USA, and it is five stars and titled Amazingly Accessible. This podcast has been an amazing resource I've been able to turn other collegiate queer kids onto and have Very them good. learn some of our history in a way I think younger people have always struggled with. You do great work. Thank you. That is a lovely review, and the phrase collegiate queer kids is just a real good one. It really is. Did I... they spell... No, they didn't. Okay. Collegiate with a Q. Yeah. yeah or kids with a Q. Or kids with a Q. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that we should all collectively start a band called Collegiate Queer Kids. Mm, mm. Uh, our next rehearsal is on Tuesday. It's in my mom's garage. I will see you there. <laughs> oh. Our next episode, which is the final episode in our season, is coming out on October 15th on the Zuni Ambassador and Two-Spirit Person, Wewa. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then. <laughs>